got the one where we're going to have um, we're going to have a fragmentary evening. But actually, I think probably quite a coherent fragmentary evening. Um, and the first, uh, Joe Barmer is going to read poems for us, and then we're going to have a bit of a discussion with me and with Laura Swift, who is involved with the production at the Old Fire Station this evening. Now, Joe, it's a great pleasure to have Joe back here again. She has, I was just thinking as I came, a, a kind of tripod of expertises. Um, she translates from classical poetry, that goes right back to the women, classical women poets and Sappho translations. Uh, she uh, is interested in translation studies and has indeed written a very fascinating book on translation of classical poetry. And she is a creative poet in her own right. So she has these three pillars. And actually, in a sense, I think with this book, which is where, what we're concentrating on, she's concentrating on this evening, you've added a fourth thing, which is researching into how the fragments that we have got preserved. The, hi the, history, the history of the fragments and the people uh, um, in the history of the fragments. Um, and um, I, I found that, I mean, this, uh, having worked uh, in a very philological way on this play, to find the, for example, particularly the, the fragment that was preserved, managed to survive in a transcript through bombing in the war in Italy, to find that turned into poetry is rather remarkable. I'm very much in agreement with the character in uh, Tom Stoppard that Joe quotes at the beginning. When I'm asked what classical play I lost classical play I would most like to have, I, I say quite sincerely the Achilles trilogy of Aeschylus, of which at the moment is the first play. Um, so uh, I very much share your fascination uh, with, with that play, um, and it's extremely unexpected uh, fragments if you don't know it. Uh, so, Joe, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. I'm going to come up. Well, thank you, Oliver, very much indeed. And obviously, your work was so important to me when I was uh, researching the book. Now, as you all know, the reading is going to serve as an hors d'oeuvre or an amuse-bouche for the play later, for Laura and Russell's play later at the old fire station. And I'm going to read for about 35 minutes, and hopefully this will leave us plenty of time for a panel discussion with Oliver and Laura. And then we can finish on time with some questions to leave space for everyone to go and get a bite, whatever you need to do. Now, as Oliver said, I'm reading tonight from my latest collection, The Paths of Survival which explores the loss of the written word. And also, it celebrates the sometimes surprising ways in which it can endure. Now, the book moves backwards in time, marking some of those points of loss and survival along the way, both directly and indirectly. Now, as Oliver said, in particular, the volume is haunted by 10 disparate fragments of a lost text, all that remains of Aeschylus's tragic masterpiece, Myrmidons which, as we all know, was written in Athens two and a half thousand years ago. Now, the play was infamous in the ancient world for its portrayal of erotic love between Achilles and Patroclus, the two Greek heroes. And this is one reason, of course, perhaps why the play did not make it through intact. And I'd like to begin here, as the book does. Ooh, hang on, let's go. I think because we're being asked to do something, so yeah, let's go. Yeah. Okay. I like to begin here, as the book does, at the end, with a tiny, tattered scrap of papyrus excavated from the tips of Oxyrhynchus in Egypt. And it, this is now in the collection of the Sackler Library, which is just around the corner from here, of course. And it constitutes just four or five barely legible half-lines, which we can see on the slide. And it's very, very typical, as you'll probably all know, of the sort of pieces that made it through. This is final sentence. Sackler Library, Oxford, present day. <coughs> Still I am drawn to it, like breath to glass, that ache of absence, wrench of nothingness, stark lacunae we all must someday face. I imagine its letters freshly seared, a scribe sighing over ebbing taper, impatient to earn night's coming pleasures, 
as light seeped out of Alexandria. But in these hushed corners of Oxford Library afternoons, milky with dust, the air is weighted down by accruing loss, and this displaced scrap of frayed papyrus, whose mutilated words can just be read, one final half-sentence, into darkness, prophetic, patient, hanging by a thread. Sorry, we keep being asked to do something here. <laughs> can you just, I think we need to say keep the, don't show the message again, and then we can, yeah. No, it doesn't work. Yes, thank you. Okay. Now, the next poem moves backwards in time to 2003 and the Gulf War, and it explores what happened when the famed and ancient Baghdad Library was set on fire by a stray incendiary bomb. And I've included this poem because it shows to us that it's still really relevant today, that literary li the destruction of literary culture is still all around us. Um, and its librarians battled long and hard to save its precious books. And we can see the remains actually here, the background of this picture of the slide, are those burnt books from the Library of Baghdad. And I should perhaps also stress here how very important such Arabic centres of learning have been over the centuries in preserving classical literature, particularly scientific works. But within such works of science, it's important to us because small snatches of more literary texts, such as Myrmidons, were often quoted, and so they were saved. The Librarian's Power. The National Library, Baghdad, 2003. We carried what we could to safety. They seemed like something living, fungus on an oak, the pleated folds of open mushroom cup, organisms that were once books, manuscripts, now debris of precision incendiary. To conserve them, we needed ice, not fire. In a ruined kitchen cellar, we found a freezer, but no power. We canvas, coax, cajoled, until locals offered the sacrifice of their one precious generator. We were asked why we struggled to save books, while all around us so many of our citizens were lost. We could only say that, if not flesh, here were dividing cells, bare blocks of collective memory, conscience. The vast record of all our knowledge and of our faith an ancient Quran, the house of wisdom we had built, the learning we alone had salvaged and then protected for the Greeks, Ptolemy's Almagest, science, medicine. Those lost worlds were retrieved in the flash of forceps, lifting piece on tiny piece, word on broken word, our own enduring, unshakable belief that in each newly deciphered letter a poem waited to be recovered. Okay. Now, we move back now to Florence in 1944, as Oliver's already mentioned. Now, as many of you will know, a lot of the 19th and early 20th century excavations at Oxyrhynchus were carried out by Italian teams of archaeologists. And so many pieces of papyrus were taken back to the Institute of Papyrology in Florence for, for analysis. Now, these included one very damaged scrap of myrmidons, which, like our Oxford fragment earlier, was still crucial to the survival of the text. Then, tragedy struck. During the Allied bombing of Florence in 1944, this piece was destroyed. And this next poem takes the viewpoint of that bomber plane's pilot. Itch. Florence, 23rd of March, 1944 AM. I felt I was a tourist, or maybe even God, poised above the city's glowing sights, with power over creation, destruction, all lost or saved in the squeeze of a knob, history held between finger and thumb. As we turned back, I think I sneezed, or my co-pilot twitched, an itch, maybe. I saw it fall, 
a grey speck on a single house. For a moment, I thought of my baby son as smoke spiralled up like umbilical cord. For his sake, there was no time to fuss. Our mission had been achieved without loss. Targets both destroyed. Stray objects hit, won. Ground casualties not known. Job well done. But there is a coda to this story, a much happier coda. And this just shows you that this kind of fragility of survival. The following poem set a few years later will explain it all. This is Papyrus Trace, Institute of Papyrology, Florence, 1953. Among the professor's papers, deposited after her recent death, calculations, petty cash registers, even a house plan in faint sketch, we found a pencil transcript, scrawled in haste, not remembered, traced beneath an old shopping list, a breath exhaled, deep buried ember, trapped in the scent of lavender musk, letters from a lost world seeping back to black, etched in breath-blown dust, speak out, dissent, enough. A few precious words of Aeschylus we'd all believed had gone forever. The fragment found at Oxyrhynchus, then lost again in an allied raid. By this second miracle returned to us, late violets trembling above a grave. Right, now we move back now, a little bit further in time, to the 19th century and to the works of the many scholars who edited and researched references to lost works. Now one of these was John Anthony Kramer, an Oxford academic and cleric. In the 1930s, his Anecdota Graica gathered together works from the French National Library, including a clearly homoerotic line from Myrmidons, although he does not give the sources... Um, it does not give the original source or the author in his work. Now, in my poem, I imagined Kramer working in the Paris Library during what was a time of radical uprising in the city and its brutal suppression. And here, the unrest on the streets echoes his own turmoil at his discovery. Although I should stress, of course, that this is all completely fictional conjecture. Redaction. John Kramer... The Royal Library, Paris, July 1834. I barely saw the city. I tracked down only texts for extracts. But as I studied, the library's high windows shuddered with the shouts of rioters, republicans, radicals, they told us. On Rue Vivienne, the injured were stowed like receipted books or consulted papers. One corpse lay crumpled, a red note in the street. I walked on by, non-aligned. I thought of the desk I had just left, its volumes still untouched, smooth as fresh sheets. Yet even here I was no longer safe. As the hiss and boom of gunfire ceased, I turned a leaf, easing out the crease leaning on my elbows for weight. An old manuscript, deep in the collection, a work I should never have breached. I am absolved because I loved him. A reference, if I was not much mistaken, to the unspeakable vice of the Greeks. In Aeschylus, I copied author and play, then scratched them out, better not to say. Now we move back now to the Renaissance and the so-called manuscript hunters who scoured the cities of the East to purchase forgotten texts of Greek works. And this poem takes the voice of one of the most famous of these, Giovanni Arisba. In December 1423 alone, he brought back 238 manuscripts from Istanbul to Venice, including the only known copy of Aeschylus' extant tragedies. And sadly, of course, Myrmidons wasn't among them. 
But these recoveries nevertheless helped to fuel interest in his work in the West. And we can see here the exact edition that Giovanni brought home on the slide. This is Horde. Giovanni Arisba, Constantinople and Venice, 1423. In the bazaar, I bartered shirt and sword. Careful its hawkers did not sense the worth of the books they had piled up as if soiled. For here was the hoard of forgotten worlds, discoloured texts as dark as clouded pearls. Back home, I caress my acquisitions tenderly, afraid their soft skin might tear. I had no lovers, I knew no passion, except for this, for words, my life's breath, air. Yet it seemed I cradled Bosphorus sand that slipped through my fingers, or drifts of snow from the peaks of Parnassus, Pelion, shrunk in a second by our Venice sun, no more than water trickling through the hand. Right. Well, again, we're moving back in time, this time to 12th century Spain, and to one of the ways in which a text can and does survive, and that is through translation, which is obviously something quite close to my heart. Now, Gerard of Cremona was the leading scholar at the medieval Toledo School of Translators, and he worked mostly on scientific texts, such as Ptolemy's Almagest, or Star Atlas, which had been preserved by Arab culture in the previously Muslim city. But these were then later translated back from Arabic into Latin for the West to rediscover, and they revolutionised many fields, such as sea navigation. But, as I mentioned earlier, many of these texts quoted lines from literary works, which were then preserved for posterity. For example, one of Galen's medical tracts contains a snatch of Myrmidons. And in this poem here, my Gerard imagines those great lost books of poetry. Gerard's Constellations, Southern Spain, 1175. I came to Toledo to map the stars. I was hunting Ptolemy's Almagest, the key to our cram skies, held safe there all these centuries by the Moors. Its charts, I heard, steered men homewards through ink-black skies, night's vastness, constellations tracked as if by a thread. Now I saw it all, sphere on sphere, worlds opening up, unlocked doors, catalogued, fixed, holding us here. After the skies, I discovered the earth, medicine, mathematics, the healing works of the Greeks, studded with metaphor, a science that glittered like poetry. So I translated them, last in a chain, Greek to Arabic and now my Latin, striving to be faithful, yet make them sing. But alone at night, I found myself dreaming of other unknown poets the anguish of their lines drifting out into darkness, as if sailors be calmed by unfamiliar waters, with no way back when the daylight falters. And, in cloud, stars are slowly extinguished, dimming one by one before they vanish. Right, well, all translators require a lexicon. And the next poem takes us back in time to the 9th century and to Photius, a secular civil servant who became patriarch of, um, or church leader in Constantinople twice during a time of religious schism. Now, hostile sources, admittedly, recount that his treatment of his enemies was harsh, as was his persecution of the city's Jewish community. But... He was also renowned for his classical learning, and among other works, a lexicon of rare Greek words is attributed to him, a great source of quotation from otherwise lost texts. 
One of its entries is the unusual Greek adjective abdeluctus. This, we are told, comes from a line in Myrmidons, abdeluctus philo, or in English, absolved because I love him. Words presumably uttered by Achilles, a grieving Achilles over Patroclus's body. And if you remember the poem redaction that I read uh, a little earlier, these are also the words discovered in the 19th century library by John Kramer. Now, all in all, it seems a slightly strange piece for a church patriarch to quote. And in the following poem, the, words, the word serves as a means to articulate how later writers, editors, lexicographers, translators, and indeed poets might attempt to twist or pervert classical usage for their own means. This is Gloss, Photius I, Byzantium 878. I worked my way up by my wits, from clerk to city patriarch. I corrected each schism, effaced the iconoclasts, until our golden streets turned black and red. In broken churches, we counted the deaths. I remembered a reed-slim boy of nine or ten, the taste of his salt lips on mine, weed-choked detritus dragged from golden horn. Now terms were defined in my lexicon. I started with alpha, abdeluctus, above blame. Any heretics, tortured, maimed, absence of guilt, all Jews slaughtered, abdeluctus, a sword hissing through bone, absolved, assaults washed clean by each fresh gloss. Right. Okay. Well, we're moving back now. We've come to the end of the classical world. Um, in 391, as many of you will know, pagan rites were finally outlawed by the Christian emperor, emperor Theodosius. And in Alexandria, an angry mob of Christians are said to have attacked a group of pagans who had taken refuge, refuge in an um, offshoot of the Great Library. Um, the Christians are then said to have destroyed many of its works. And this is their side of the story. The Christian's Cheek, Alexandria, 391. We're old hands these days, true believers for decades, a part, of course, for the break effected by Julian, the apostate, when we found it was politic to revert, just for the interim, to blood rites, full sacrifice. Now we've changed back again. Our new emperor, Theodosius, has outlawed all pagan practice. That tribe of soothsayers, seers, all the priests of Thoth, Serapis, trite dramatists, epigrammatists with their sharp-tongued sneers, will storm their prized libraries, strip the dwindling shelves bare. Who needs poetry or philosophy when you have faith, orthodoxy? For we are so tired of turning the other cheek. Time to shed ink, shred parchment. It's a while since we've put a knife to fine calf's skin. In this next poem, the pagans have their say. And again, it's set in Egypt at the end of the fourth century, as Christianity has become the official state religion. And here, a pre previously pagan family in Oxyrhynchus decide that, since the world is turned, they now need to ally themselves with the new church. This is the pagan's tip. Oxyrhynchus, Upper Egypt, 390. Today, we sacrificed our last bull. Not easy, with just the five of us. Walking back with Callus, my cousin, we both agreed it was time to stop. Now, we said, we are all Christians. That night, I gathered up the volumes my family had prized over the years. Philosophy, poetry, the great dramas of Aeschylus, epigrams of Pallidus, texts our ancestors had brought home in triumph from each trip to Alexandria. Those pages hold our history like maps. 
If I run my fingers over the covers, their gold letters and tooled leather, I can trace the twisted paths of our past. This is who we were and what we are. Grammarians, clerks, petty bureaucrats. On the shelf, I replaced each space with Paul's epistles, all the gospels. Ours I took out beyond the walls, among the flies and rotting waste, left them there for the rats to soil, like any piece of discarded refuse. Do the same if you want my advice. Now our next poem moves us back further into the classical world and the ancient anthologists, probably known to many of you, who collected bits and pieces of older works together for their readers. And one of these, Lucian of Samosota, wrote the first novels in Western history, including some of the earliest known ghost stories and a prototype sci-fi adventure, I'm sure you know. His dialogue, Erotes or Loves, debates the difference between heterosexual and homosexual love concluding that the latter is superior. Now, to further the argument, he quotes various different bits and pieces of literary works, including a line from Myrmidons. And this is one of the ways, probably, I think, is it the only way it's still known, Oliver, I think? To think that's the earliest quote of that line, I think. Yet, here in my poem, I kind of imagined Lucian being a little defensive about his rather titillating, very popular, rather scabrous works, and that he probably had something rather different in mind when he started <coughs> off. This is Erotic Tales, Lucian, Samosata, Syria, 200. I'd thought of myself as the new Homer, but readers, I soon learnt, prefer horror, sci-fi, my erotic tales pay the bills, bring in the hard cash, the boys and or girls. Even Aeschylus, known for weighty verse, dipped his nib in the ambidextrous. Such sacred communion between the thighs, sighed his Achilles over pert backside, to top my list of things by curious. And who's to say I'm not as lyrical? Across the empire, at any scribe's stall, my lightweight prose is still copied ten times more than dull, turgid tragedies. Is this a talent wasted or career waylaid? Weighty or not, they'll remember my lines when Aeschylus's plays have long decayed. Move on. Now the next two poems are sort of sister poems in that they both take place in the harbour at Alexandria, if 200 years apart from each other. And the first one is based on a, a possibly apocryphal incident in Plutarch's life of Julius Caesar. In 48 BCE, Caesar was besieged in Alexandria during the civil war between Ptolemy 13, I think it is, and his sister, more famous sister, Cleopatra with whom Caesar had sided. Now, cut off by his enemies at sea, Caesar is said to have set fire to his own ships in the harbour, either by design or accident, and for somewhat obscure reasons. This had disastrous results, Plutarch tells us, when the flames spread across the water to the city and to its famous library. And this poem, I think, forms a sort of ancient counterpart to the librarians of Baghdad um, that I read earlier, Although here, my narrator is uh, not a library saviour, but the library's destroyer, Caesar. This is Diplair, or Diply in English, I think, but I'm using the Greek here. Julius Caesar, Alexandria, 48 BCE. Remember now and then to score the page, my boyhood tutor said. A place to return to in the future, in case you need to amend or find a reading at first unseen, hidden. We never know what we might miss or pass and cannot guess. In Greek, we call this diple, to rhyme with slip there. Meanings are many and move all the time. So we etch our draft. I thought no more of it. My history was written, 
achievements recorded, definitive, third person. But then, in Alexandria, I felt the ground shift. It was clear all were set on war with Caesar. I saw my enemies close, the scorch of defeat. That night, it was my idea to fire the ships. We watched the sails, huge white sparks, drif drifting slowly across from harbour to docks. God-sized charcloth to catch the stores of copied books, our whole world in draught, stack on stack, waiting to be sent back. Next, the library itself, illuminating the dark. In the morning, we found a smouldering gap, the space where I could make my own mark. As I say, the next poem stays in Alexandria in the 3rd century BCE, when the Great Library was being assembled. In particular, it is said that any texts found on ships in the city's harbour were seized and new, man, new copies were made from the texts, which would then be returned intact. But when Athens sent their great tragic works, including those of Aeschylus, Ptolemy III, brackets possibly, kept the originals and sent the copies back instead, which obviously had huge ramifications for later survival. Now, this poem takes the voice of a very gruff, fictional ferryman who is charged with gathering those books in the harbour. And here I've also embedded a very challenging fragment from Myrmidons, which is known to us from bemused parodies in Aristophanes. So in this way, not only can that sort of confusion and wonder of the fictional ancient characters reflect our own, but in addition, the sort of alluring opaqueness of the fragment can also be preserved. The Ferryman's Role, Alexandria, circa 245 BCE. The lads tease me, call me Charon. I row out to anchored ships at night, taking my tax as ferryman, not of pennies, but texts, as our law decrees, seizing poems, plays for transcribing in our new museum, swearing to return all works I borrow. Last week, I took some rolls of Aeschylus to Callimachus, our famed librarian. Gilt horse cockerel mastheads, we read perplexed. Crafted with care, are melting drip by drip in the corrosive fires of burning ships. Hmm. We joked how they must drink, these Athenians. Callimachus did not laugh. It was fate, he said. Here were the Greek prows at Troy, torched as Achilles sulked, Myrmidons. Lines thought so precious that he would not give them back. We all groaned aghast, not more horse cocks. <laughs> and then I glanced at Callimachus's face, caught in a shifting taper as he talked, like a city put to flame, molten wax, about to twist the world into new shapes. This is my penultimate poem, where again we stay in Alexandria, <coughs> ostensibly in the second century um, BCE, but uh, second century CE. But actually, this could have been written at any time. I think uh, in, in the in classical history. Now, scribes are obviously the unsung heroes of the survival of any ancient work, and in this poem, a rather grumpy and slightly foul-mouthed scribe thinks he is throwing pearls before swine as he copies Aeschylus's Myrmidons for socially mobile clients who will probably never even read the plays, he suspects, such as the family mentioned earlier in The Pagan's Tip. And yet, as he proceeds with his work, he finds echoes of his own grief in the tragedy. And I should say, this poem sort of takes us back full circle to our opening poem this evening, as my fictional scribe is, is imagined, I imagined him writing the same words on the same papyri, papyrus that eventually finds its way back to the Oxford Library, the Sackler Library. <coughs> blot, Alexandria. It barely matters if I blot or blotch. These days, no one asks for Aeschylus. 
As light fades, I head for the streets, a cheap tavern or the house of whores, to scrub off this stain of guilt and remorse, floors that cling like yesterday's rotten fish. On mornings after, I retake my seat, propping up each eyelid with stylus tip, making errors I can later edit. And then today, a buyer for my script, some pompous provincial bureaucrat, up from Oxyrhynchus with cold hard cash, although he couldn't tell drama from dog shit. All he cares is how it looks on the shelf. For him, I etch these words of love and grief. I think of my wife, dead after a few weeks. There'd been a baby, some complication. The pockmarked physician couldn't tell which. I came back one night and she was gone. Into darkness. The skin I too must live in. Mistakes uncorrected, holding the blame. The only words left now to mask the pain. Right. And my <coughs> final poem tonight is the last poem in the book. And um, we come right back from um, a tiny piece of papyrus fragment of, of Myrmidons to Aeschylus editing the play on his deathbed in Sicily, in Gala. Now, it's a far lengthier piece than the others, and it was written for the, for the journal Long Poem Magazine. So at this stage of the evening, you'll probably be relieved to know that I've edited it down a bit for you. <laughs> As I say, the poem sees Aeschylus looking back at his life and works on his deathbed in Gala in Sicily, his second visit to the island after previously being invited to revive his play Persians some years earlier. Now, apart from his participation in the battles of Marathon and I think also Salamis, um, we don't really know very much about Aeschylus' life. Although perhaps we always think of him as this sort of stern, doer figure of, of the busts, as you can see here, or indeed Aristophanes' plays, the parodies in Aristophanes' plays. But in this poem, I wanted to give him a new voice, a sort of new vigour, and a new passion as well. Now, ancient sources such as Herodotus mention um, Aeschylus' brother, or sometimes friend, Cunigarus, a comrade at Marathon who died valiantly in the battle, we're told, and was a great hero of Athens. And perhaps a little controversially here, I transformed Cunigaris into Aeschylus' lover, mirroring the erotic passion between Patroclus and Achilles in Myrmidons. Aeschylus' revision, Gala, Sicily, 456 BCE. I have been trying to find a word for the colour of the sea, Wind stirred for days now, storm faded, foam flecked, shadowed by the span of egret wings, nosing north, heading home. But it would take a lifetime to capture, and, as my Syrian physician concurs, I have only a fraction of one left. And Greek is too vague, the language of the colourblind, chloros. We use it both of rain-drenched summer grass and sun-blanched autumn straw, or piss, as the physician notes with relish. If we Athenians ever need to evaluate, variegate, differentiate, we must do it by association, metaphor, epithet. Spray whitened, blood raged, death dark. The complex adjectives my critics have long reviled for their strangeness. The reason perhaps we are at heart a nation of politicians, tricksters, poets, trying to catch the fleeting, the imprecise, through our tongue's own imprecision. Those dark words scarring pale papyrus. But as we write, a world bursts into light. As I stare across the bay, scything my way through faded lines I had long given up on, Stylus sharper even than a hero's blade. All I can see is another unvoiced colour, another blurred chloros. A pair of eyes turning to mine that day in the agora, 
We heard how those vast Persian armies were now on their way to destroy us. A young man's eyes, the eyes of a warrior, as pale and soft as the last few scabious at the very end of summer. Cunegaris. Find strength, he said. Cities can fall in the flash of a sword, but faith, ideas, take root like weeds in its shattered halls. There is nothing now for us to fear. As Athens waited all those months, we shared one flesh, one skin, one breath. When the storm came, we stood together for those ten never-ending August nights at Marathon. Life's blood, shield brothers, armed against the moment the fight would finally begin. Now the piked plain was indivisible from sea, shields glistening like sun-dipped waves. Time was suspended, a sigh exhaled, caught like a feather between the rounds of ocean boulders. Later, stars clashed across the skies, Orion leading the charge, bow-strung, the hunter. <coughs> Trapped beneath, I thought of Achilles, of all those other young men at Troy, on another plain, by another blooded sea, who knew their lives might not be long. At last, the signal came to march, destroy. Cunegaris at my side, we reached the ships, his eyes in mine, in the heat of battle. Yet I hesitated, felt my knees buckle, as the fear that Homer coloured chloros like stagnant water, dank, death-gripped, took its clammy hold. Cunegaris did not falter. Smiling, he stepped up to take my place. They said he fought like a rabid beast. When the enemy struck on all sides like wolves scattering lambs, who strapped his shield on slender arms and single-handedly drove them home, who saved you? And then he was gone. Flesh sliced to pieces, life thread cut short. There is no coming back from Acheron. Afterwards, numb, I wrote Myrmidons, never able to admit it was for him, struggling to give my Achilles words. I thought I was moving through the years, letting my work dictate my life. Was it always the other way round? The fears that shattered my youth are gone. I am no longer concerned with the death of the body, only the death of the work. My epitaph is written. Here lies a man who fought at Marathon. My plays will tell the rest, flesh-stripped bones. A few weeks ago, I dismissed the Syrian. Words now are my only <coughs> physician. From the horror comes the healing. Poetry flourishes in the cracks of lies, in the white spaces between the lines, the place I dreamed my city into being, not of gold or marble, but of iron law, where men must account for the killing. Where Chloris may be the colour of fear, but also of sky, sea, a pair of pale eyes. I take out my stylus and begin to strike. Now I must amend, I must speak out, acknowledge to myself, to the living and to the dead, if they still care or listen. My love, remember all the nights we shared. What matters now is what survives, what time corrodes and what it spares. Thank you very much.
thought and the survival, mm -hmm. uh, which I think comes across beautifully. Um, I think these are some of your best poems, if I may say so. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's always nice to hear. <laughs> um, now, uh, would, Laura, do you want to come and say yes. something? Yes. Um, perhaps before we bring you into the discussion, are, are there any questions particularly to Joe? Because we're, once we bring Laura in, we'll be on to the whole question of the, of the value, the... Um, uh, the uh, solidity or e evanescence of fragments. But are there questions that anyone would like to ask Joe specifically about these poems? Yeah. yeah, thank you very much, Joe. I, like Oliver, I think this really is some of your very best work. I'd like to ask you how far you see it as a kind of successor to the word for sorrow, because they have a number of the same themes linking up to the fate of texts over mm -hmm. time. Um, I think it, it's, is this a kind of direction that you're going in? Is, is there a? Um, I don't know at the moment <laughs> about the next book, but yes, definitely I, I wanted to, to sort of build on what I'd done in, with the word for sorrow. And I think what is very interesting is about this book is that there are no female voices in it, and that's something that before in my poetry I'd always written in the female voice but with the word for sorrow because it was set at Gallipoli and it had Ovid's voice in it as well I'd started writing in a male voice so I think that sort of led me in nat more naturally as well into this but I just like the idea of a sequence just sort of following something through of writing every poem as an individual poem but the fact that they can sort of all join together like fragments to make a, a cohesive whole I think it's wonderful the way it kind of fictionalizes scribes and scholars, as it were. It's a kind of history of transmission through poetry, and I think that that's really effective structure. Oh, thank you. Yes, there were just some great characters out there, really, I mm. think. Yeah, great stories. Leslie. Um, yes, again, echoing Oliver, I think there's a, such a palpable sense of loss and grief and chancy, chancy survival um, in this, um, which is almost unbearably poignant. And I wondered whether you had ever thought of or been tempted to, if that's the right expression, um, write um, an academic book about, about this, because it's hugely researched. Mm -hmm. um, or whether you thought that such a book would take you away from the emotionality. Yes, no, I... I I really wanted to write it as poetry. It's a very interesting point because, you know, sometimes poetry critics will criticise my work for being too, you know, overly scholarly. Um, so, but I, I definitely wanted to keep it in the realms of poetry because I think poetry is where sometimes truths emerge that don't emerge necessarily in, in scholarship. I mean, different truths, but um, I mean, I'm totally reliant on the work that, that scholars do in reading it, like Oliver, uh, Oliver's work. But I think there is a way in which poetry can take things even further, sort of outside of the box, and, and find you know, sort of different ways of looking at things, which I was very, very interested in doing. It's so interesting that this play became notorious for the homoeroticism. And, and the lament uh, over the body of his lover. And that now, that's where we've, we find a particular beauty and poignancy mm. mm. uh, in it. The, uh, the ex it being exceptional, both in, both in its explicit homoeroticism, which isn't in the Iliad, mm. um, but also um, in its, um, its passion. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I mean, at the back of the book, I did actually have the, you know, the sort of the last bit is, is the text of the play, just so that you can see, really, that there's nothing at all there. But out of that nothing, as you say, is just this incredible beauty, this in, in, incredible passion. And you think, you know, how the did physicality. the physicality, how did that come about? What did it mean? How did people react to that? I mean, also, there's, there's you know, which I haven't read those particular poems today, there's a, a, there was a lot of, um, we, we read, opposition to the play when it was first performed because Achilles didn't say anything 
for sort of I think about a, a third or a quarter of the play just sits there veiled um, and that this power of silence as well I think plays right back into the issue of fragmentation that the silence of, of Achilles was I mean it's in a little bit about it in the bit of the poem I didn't read um, but how that seemed to have very much affected the audience in one way or another and now we only have the gaps it, you know, the sort of the play becomes a metaphor. I think more than any other. Um, there's, there's just something about it, just out of these ten tiny, tiny fragments. Well, I think <laughs> that's a way to start. Um, I think I've, I've felt very much with piecing together the fragments that I, that I said everything, you know, that everything was sort of poured into that, and that there was, in a way, no more to say um, from, from my point of view in, a, in terms of an academic study. But obviously, yes, I think it does, it's just a progression from, from Sappho right through, because one of the most important things, interesting things about Sappho is the way in which um, different generations, different uh, scholars within the same generation react or read the work. And so, therefore, that, does, that did automatically, you're quite right, take, take me on to here. But I think that I, I, I like the idea, I mean, I almost wrote it as pieces of short fiction. I liked the idea of it being fictionalised. Um, I think there's a way in which you can engage and how, how do you um, w what poetry can do for example in two of the poems I read um, with the, the gl poem gloss about Fotis's lexicon and also the poem about the ferryman is that it can actually say a lot of different things at the same time in a very short space which I don't think you can do quite the same, I mean, it has layers upon layers so we can be like the ferryman thinking what on earth is that passage about and then we can also be standing back and saying oh yes but this was you know incredibly important that that the alexandrians decided to keep to keep the work and not send it back so that's that's actually a sonnet and a half that poem so it's you know it's 21 lines and there's so much you can put in that i think is it's you know. um, laura can we bring you in how did you come to fret the creativity of fragments. Mm. Well, for me, um, I, and I, I, so my research is on Greek tragedy and also on fragmented texts, so uh, um, originating more from lyric poetry and from that coming back to fragments of tragedy. Um, and I think the, the first thing that struck me was coming from a lyric perspective to Greek drama was that tragedy scholarship is very focused on reconstruction. Um, because the plays have obviously have plots, and so there's there's a, a real um, emphasis on what happened in this scene, a kind of logical extrapolation of this words is here, and therefore it must have been from this bit of the myth, and it must have been this character who spoke it. Um, um, and I felt that there was a kind of there was an absence of something that you do get in lyric poetry scholarship, which is the the aesthetic appeal um, of just that individual line um, and how much you can get from a few words of Sappho or of Archilochus. Um, and I think that 
the aesthetics of tragic fragments are, are under um, used, probably because we've got lots and lots of survival tragedies, so people who are interested in the poetry of tragedy are probably drawn to write about the Medea, they're probably mm. not drawn to write about the Myrmidons. Um, and then, so I've been working, um, I, and then I was also interested in, it sort of started from a sort of thought experiment about um, how, going to the other extreme, what could you do artistically with these little scraps. Um, um, so I've been working with uh, a team of theatre makers, um, which started from the premise of how can we stage tragic fragments, but we quite quickly realised that what we didn't want to do was to try and reconstruct a lost play of Euripides, and we certainly didn't want to write fake Euripidean dialogue and fill in scenes, because ultimately that would just lead to a, a, a kind of a bad pastiche of Euripides. Um, and what we really liked was, I think what really came across to me in your first poem, with that the, the line you quoted about um, Into Darkness, was just how just those two words are incredibly evocative in a way that if you had the whole line or the whole speech, maybe it wouldn't be. Mm. And that um, and that's something that's always struck me with Sappho a lot as well, mm. that um, or in a way, the less you have, the more your mind is drawn to filling in the gaps and um, um, the beauty of the absence. And we were exploring that theatrically in workshops through things like if you see quite a banal image, but you see it through a door frame, um, then even a simple action like reading a newspaper or somebody's hand signing a letter is much more powerful than if you see the whole scene. Um, mm. So what, what I've been interested in, I suppose, is ways of exploring fragmentation and why, why is it that we're so drawn to um, these little scraps and um, what is it about the human mind that can't resist filling in the gaps and yet, from a scholarly perspective, you have to fill in what might have been there, but it's so easy to, to go too far, to build too much on what's actually just your own extrapolation. Mm. It reminds me of the Swiss, there's a Swiss collector who collected broken bits of pottery. Mm. Um, and some of them are absolutely exquisite, and you wonder, could they have been so exquisite if, yeah. if, if, if mm. the piece had been complete? Yeah. Mm. I think, yes, I, I, yes, please. Uh, there's a kind of uh, constant value to uh, human existence, which uh, the archaeologists sort of uh, try to find in stone, but the drama reflects it very beautifully. And uh, you've done this very well, and it sort of uh, matched the, the, the picture and the date with the lines, and even the actual sort of uh, spirit of Greek drama is reflected beautifully. Um, the only other person I could think of doing this was Lawrence Dolan in Alexandria. Mm. He fine poet as well. Mm. And he was very Greek and Roman in his way. So was he a bit of an influence? Um, yeah, I'd <laughs> it's funny actually because one of the poems is about um, Amir, um, the Arab conqueror of Egypt. And I first came across his dying words, which are translated in E.M. Forster's Guide to Alexandria, but I first came across them in Lawrence Durrell's Alexandrian Quartet. So, yes, <laughs> I think he was rattling around in the Alexandrian. Yeah. Do we think that the, the modern interest in fragments has anything to do with cinema? Because mm -hmm. um, just thinking, Laura was talking, the way that you have sort of short visual shots and rapid cutting and then you fill in the rest. This, this is extremely cinematic mm. technique. Mm. And we're used to thinking like that in a way that maybe previous generations are not. Does that go some way to explain mm. uh, modern interest in, in fragments, the fact that we have images, especially now with digital images, and uh, incredible variety and complexity? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I, I think it's it's certainly true that when we were talking about ways of representing fragmentation, the sorts of language we were using often draws on the world of film. That it's easy to think of you know cut to this and cut to that, and th that's obviously very challenging to do theatrically um, in a way that it's incredibly simple to do in film. Um, um, and I mean, I, I hadn't thought about whether that's something broader and psychological to do with uh, the current generation, but uh, um, I think I, I think you're you're certainly right that cinematography lends itself to 
fragmented narratives um, or putting together fragments in, in that way. Mm. Um, well, that's also very definitely what someone like Hans T. Sleeman feels about post-dramatic theatre. Yeah. Um, and, and that it's precisely the intermediality that mm. um, has, in his view, led to the kind of the breakdown of our interest in narrative in any kind of Aristotelian sense and our absolute desire to participate in constructing the narrative. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I suppose, I, I mean, I'm more interested in, and maybe wrongly, uh, you know, as a classicist, I'm interested in what, you know, the initial discovery of fragments, you know, and, and the deciphering of, of, of the early um, uh, fragments that came out of Oxyrhynchus and what that, obviously, I mean, it, 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 it came at a moment clearly which led, you know, in time to imagism, but um, it also coincided with um, a fascination. I mean, I, I, it's, Stephen's talked about film, but of course, it's also the moment of collage, it's a moment mm -hmm. of montage which then gets fed into film but not until the 20s, whereas the fragments are there um, yes, before, uh, at that yeah. earlier stage. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I wonder, I mean, I, I think before film, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of interested as well in chronophotography because um, people are reading images on vases uh, before they're also looking at fragments. And, and, and of course, the same process is, is involved. It's, you know, how do we put the pieces together? And mm -hmm. then, Plenty of people in France, particularly with the dancer, who think that if you ran all the images, you know, on a, a vase together, like in chronophotography, you would discover what a dance looked like. And that's okay, you're hungry for the whole of the sequence rather than what you're saying now. It's, it's, I mean, in a way, it's a very postmodern thing. I mean, it, of the post-dramatic theatre kind of, we want, we like to piece them together rather than the, maybe we want all the bits there. Mm. Um, but no, thank you. I mean, I thought that was absolutely riveting, and I can't wait for tonight yeah. because <laughs> <laughs> the main course. <laughs> but it's, it's um, sort of psychoanalysis is also perhaps yeah adds to you know Lacan and the fragmented body and yeah. you know, yeah. the, but even Freud probably that, that sort of <laughs> they all start at the same time and um, we were also interested in how. Um, in modern neuroscience um, teaches us that we, we, we believe that we have this narrative stream of, of the world, but in fact what we're doing is dealing with highly fragmented information mm -hmm. um, and that we construct that into a narrative um, mm -hmm. and sometimes we go wrong because we perceive what we think is most likely to be there, which obviously nearly always is right, but actually our, our senses are quite impoverished um, and that 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 is, in a way, quite a good analogy for what we do as scholars when we're piecing something yes, together. Yeah. And we, it's quite easy to see what you expect to be there because you're reconstructing in the light of the genre and of your expectations rather rather than... And, and it's easy to almost to believe that you've read something in the text and forget that actually it's somebody else's suggestion. Mm. 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 There was a question. I was just going to say, it's like when you walk past a window and you have, or you're on a bus and you happen to see people talking or arguing and you get intrigued and by the time you've got home you've made up a whole story about them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, life on the train. Yes. Lady at the mic. a slightly different suggestion about the angle that we might look at the generative possibilities of fragments from. Um, I was thinking partly just when Laura was first describing um, the, the kind of aesthetic um, uh, generation of looking at fragments of some work that one of my colleagues in the English faculty has recently been doing on Shakespeare about um, hyper-close reading, which essentially makes a fragmented, a fragmented text out of something that is a complete text mm -hmm. and that takes you know, moments, words, phrases, uh, just very small passages as the opportunity for um, generative readings and that made me think about the practice of commentary and the way that commentary in itself segments a text in such a way that the lamata are um, potentially generative in a way that is similar to this kind of 
fragmentary um, uh, kind of archive that we're talking about, but which can be productive when done to complete texts as well. Mm, and there's a few examples of kind of creative commentary, aren't there? Whether that's Anne Carson or not. Yes, Peter Russell. Jeremy Crin, very dense commentaries <laughs> on sonnets, book length, so, yeah, commentaries on single poems or sheets mm. of I wonder if the kind of what Laura was talking about, about the aesthetic excitement of um, fragments might be transferred equally into larger scale uh, works as well. Mm. Uh, um, there's, there's also Tom Phillips's, I don't know if you've seen a human, mm. yeah. that's quite, that, that's the sort of inverse to where he, he's, he bought an old, I don't know if people know, this, he bought an old book and then his painter painted out bits of um, yeah. of the text on each page and then an illustration so at random he's just picked out words and there's about three different he's done it three different times with the same yeah. book, is or, or, or Alice Oswald yeah. yes. excavation yeah. text, so that something yeah. that is ostensibly completely becomes different but yes I'll be back okay. from the play please, please go on with her <laughs> <laughs> perhaps we ought to um, <laughs> well I can yeah. take a, a, a <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Lost our chair. People um, living. I, I, I do think um, we need to give um, you know Joe a chance to get something to eat. Laura a chance um, <laughs> to, get to go and uh, consult <laughs> and prepare herself for, for later tonight. But before we do, can we? Well, thank Laura very much for taking time out of a very busy schedule, and thank Joe enormously for not only. Forming us, but absolutely moving us in, yes. in, in, in ways I don't think we quite imagined we would be moved. So thank you, oh, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.